Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash Wondery and use code Wondery for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash Wondery, code Wondery. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Welcome to the News Podcast number 491. I will be coming to New York to tell jokes at Caroline's May 1st through the 3rd. So you can go to nurse.com slash calendar or go to Caroline's website and uh, and get tickets. Come out. It'll be fun. There will be hugs. Also, um, at midnight today, which is the 12th of March, is a very special episode. I'm going to... Kyle, grab a microphone. I'm going to throw three names at you. All right. The first name? Yes. Jonah Ray. Okay, I like... Sure. The second... <laughs> Is he mean to you? <laughs> no, 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 no. Actually, he, we're as uh, buddies as we've ever been. I just did his podcast. I love that Jonah Ray. That still doesn't... But okay, all right, We good. publicly have to maintain a level of hostility because that's what people want. Okay. Well, don't ruin the illusion. Sorry. Uh, two. Uh, Matt Myra. Ooh. Panelist. Okay. Panelist okay. number three. Who could round out that panel, do you think? Uh, um, let's see. You're hosting the show. Yeah. Is it Katie? No, it's not Katie, but someone who hmm. almost feels like they're a part of the team. You ready? Yeah. The man I call Double Dubs, Will Wheaton. What? Yeah. Will oh. Wheaton, oh. Matt Myra, Jonah Ray, At Midnight, is this, Africa uh, Bear, is this, is Wednesday, this March 12th. Is Myra's first appearance? This is Myra's first appearance, and, yeah. And so I like that we've set up uh, something directly from Star Trek next to him so that he will be distracted. Yes, we had so to throw Next Gen on there. It was either... It was either Will or you know we we could we could have also tried to distract him by throwing like Lavar or Denise Crosby or uh, or Riker's beard. Oh, that uh, would have been good. I bet Riker's beard would have killed on those reviews. Pre- <laughs> Riker's beard would crush. <laughs> could you have Riker's beard just read reviews at some point? Just a puppet of a beard. <laughs> oh, that's a great idea. <laughs> All right. Well, that's gonna happen. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by The Hundred on the CW. Which premieres Wednesday, March 19th at 9, 8 central on The CW. It's been 97 years since nuclear Armageddon decimated the Earth, destroying civilization. So essentially there's 400 inhabitants of 12 international space stations that were in orbit at the time. So now everyone's pretty much dead, Kyle. That's a bummer. Well, not quite yet. Oh. Because they take uh, 100 juvenile prisoners and they send them to the Earth, as you would, 
And then make them fight to the death? Well, no, no, okay, no, okay. not quite. They're just, they need to go down there and make sure this is okay for everyone else. So they, they go down. <laughs> it's essentially penguins pushing them off? Yes, to test <laughs> to see if it's okay. They're basically just sending a bunch of kids to their potential death to make sure that it's cool oh, man. for the rest of the humans. I love this year of sci-fi we're living in where we're just killing teens left and right. <laughs> Hunger Games? Wow, they really did run that girl through. with, the, with the... And now we're just like, does the air give you cancer? It could. You don't know. That's why they got to send those kids well, down watch there. the hundreds you know why because the kids are on the space station like when are we gonna play where's where's no angry birds there's nothing to do so, you know what you shut up or you're going down to test the atmosphere whatever Get. Ah! enjoy your escape pod <laughs> or is it an escape pod what are they escaping from what would be the opposite of an escape pod kyle and it's um and the opposite of an escape pod would be a prison uh, receptacle. All right, I'll take that. Because you're not. It's I thought it created like a cyberpunk Buddhist cone or something there for a minute. Oh, I don't know, but cyberpunk Buddhist cone would be a great name for oh, a band. Yeah. Uh, Kyle. Yes. Survival isn't who you are; it's who you become. Ooh. And who have you become? I since? want to become Survivor Man because it's in his name. <laughs> less. I love Survivor Man less. Yeah. He really gets it done. He really does, and can set up a camera while doing so. I, we should have him on the podcast sometime. Oh, yeah. But you know who I'm excited about today, Kyle? Ooh, ooh. It's no secret that one of the defining movies of my youth was Revenge of the Nerds. I've heard such things. I have seen this movie hundreds of times. Hundreds of times. And so, as many people as we meet on the podcast that are of note, it's it's rare that I... Well, it's actually not that rare. I'm just usually able to squash it down. But it still blows my mind that uh, Curtis Armstrong was on the podcast today. It was pretty goddamn cool. He played Dudley Booger Dawson. And also Charles Dumar in Better Off Dead, which is another uh, seminal movie I, for I my hadn't youth. seen that movie in forever. And then when we did this interview, I went back and watched. and was like, oh my god. I had forgotten this movie existed. It was See, like, I'm real sorry. Mind. Your mom blew up, Ricky. <laughs> Doctor said she just won't be able to eat any spicy foods for a while. Like, that fuck. Between Revenge of the Nerds and and Real Genius and Better Off Dead and like and of course you know Caddyshack Fletch and some of the most quotable movies of all time in that in that span. Yeah, it was a real real golden era for that. Animal House really ushered in an era of to be films, kind of a, a away from the pack, slovenly adolescent youth. It made me. I wanted to go to Adams College you. when I was a kid. I'm like, I want to go to Adams. I want to stay in that. I don't. It's fine that they moved into a nice uh, craftsman house, but I, I sure loved the uh, the dorm room when I was like 14 years old. I was like, well, that's that's what I need. That's what I want in my life. I uh, I, I wanted the their version of the Devo suit with the guitar real bad for a while. My actual college wasn't that much different than what Revenge of the Nerds was. <laughs> so, which after a few years, you're like, oh yeah, I gotta live like this, just with less sexual assault, <laughs> with a little, with a lot, with a hundred percent less, substantially less, one hundred percent less <laughs> sexual assault. Uh, but uh, Curtis Armstrong was is a phenomenal storyteller, just a wonderful guy, and uh, and I and I love that he was. He, and he looks good. He looks like Booger still. He looks good. Like you're just oh man. And he also just you know like he has great stories about everything, and so uh, I really 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 enjoyed this podcast a lot. And also I should remind you that King of the Nerds has its season finale tomorrow Thursday, uh, March 13th at 10 p.m. on TBS. 
So uh, watch that as well. I was had been suspicious about that show at first, but it, they are not Man, doing what the, they're, the, they're, they're, they are not attacking nerds the way that I was afraid that they would be. You, you TBS did a nice job with it. Gets that uh, George so, K stamp. So uh, here we go, the Nerds Podcast number four ninety one with Curtis Armstrong. Now entering nerdist.com. I brought my laptop just so I could show you uh, that my computer's little avatar is you, and has been for many years. Wow, yeah. I am honored. When I sign <laughs> on, it's basically a shot of... Of me about to say, still nothing? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, when you're getting him high, when yeah, you're getting... And he, oh, booger, I don't feel a thing. <laughs> and then he falls off. And you're sh- and you're wearing the shirt that says "Give me head till I'm dead." Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you are. Uh, uh, and someone's made a lot of money making <laughs> "Give me head till I'm dead" uh, uh, t-shirts. Did they, Did you guys just print those on the set, or was that a shirt that someone bought? Or it did, was the costume costume good. director, costume director. <laughs> I mean, a designer. You know, I would just show up, and there would be another obscene television uh, t-shirt, <laughs> and and that it was just it worked that way. It that was, it that, wasn't any idea of mine, you know. I mean, when she showed up with high on stress, or but I was very because I moderated your panel when we showed Revenge of the Nerds in the at the Castro in San Francisco, right? And then a bunch of you, most of most of you guys were there: Robert Carradine and Julia Montgomery and um, Tim Busfield, Tim Busfield, Larry B. Scott, yes. Brian Tochi, and Andrew Cassess. Andrew, who you would never recognize. The, no, now. he looks biblical now. <laughs> he has the massive beard and and all. He played Wormser, so you would never. Oh, yeah, because he's see. That's the problem. Is even between one and two, Andrew had grown up so much, and he had, but he had not yet sort of grown into his nose. Yeah. <laughs> and so he looked so different. Yeah. But he didn't look like himself, and everybody would ask him, yeah. he would tell me, everybody would ask him, why didn't they use you in the second movie? Oh, just, <laughs> no, that is me in the second movie. <laughs> and he looks older. that much different now than yeah. he did in the second movie from the first. See, the, you know, the parents, they should do the Michael Jackson thing and load him up with the stunt is, you know. Did they do that? Didn't they? Did they? I thought they... <laughs> didn't they? Did they? To keep did his they? Voice really? From, to keep his voice from breaking. Did they? Did they? I don't know. There I is, think there, they did. There, there is that thing uh, that's common in a lot of Greek people of uh, testosterone deficiency. And like it kind of like Andy Milnakis has it. Mm-hmm. And it's just like it kind of like it, it takes a lot longer for you to go through puberty. So like it's like there are there are types of like yeah actors. but the Greeks tend to make up for it afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> Once it finally happens, then, then it's, you know, all it's full off. steam ahead. I'm going to go with he, they offended the gods in some way. Yes, <laughs> that's right. And that's we're right. punished. Let them gestate for just a moment more. <laughs> Their father was Zeus disguised as a bull when he's uh, tried to <laughs> have sex with the mother. Um, but what I was fascinated to find out when I moderated this panel was that it wasn't 
just a movie that you guys came on as actors. You all really participated in the story and the character. Well, we did, but it wasn't it wasn't our idea to do that. That was something that they encouraged. We weren't. I don't think we were expecting. I certainly wasn't. Um, we weren't expecting to do that. But then they flew us out a week or so early to Tucson, and that was the procedure: was we, we would sit around um, the pool. And one by one, we would get called in to meet with the writers and the director and talk about our character and, you know, what he was like or she was like and all that. Hmm. And so we wound up. And then once we got into, they were doing the rewrites. And then once we got to filming, we would wind up doing a lot of improvisation. Oh, wow. So a lot of the movie, it surprises me, actually, when looking back on it now, how much of it is is uh, just made up. That's well, incredible. I've cited this movie several times, and I said this in the panel, that I, it is, this was the movie that sort of helped me define who I was because up to that point, I didn't know there was a grouping. I just thought, oh, I like these things. I like some things in life. And only three or four other people in my school also like those things, and then everyone else likes other stuff. Yeah. But I didn't know that that had a name or a label, nor did I feel any grand connection to any greater movement that was happening. And so when I saw that, I was like, holy shit, that's the fuck, but that's, yeah. yeah, you know, it was like that sort of a, that sort of a moment. Well, I think it also had that effect because, because I would get phone calls. I, for a long time, I still had an, a listed number. Because I was trying to make a point to myself, I guess. <laughs> and, um, hey, man, don't go Hollywood. Yeah, no, no. I mean, I'm literally. All right, I'm going to go a little Hollywood. Here, I was yeah. still, I still had a, you could look me up in the phone book. <clears throat> and I would get phone calls from these guys who clearly were lonely, disenfranchised guys who saw that movie and thought, I want to be in that house with those people because that's my refuge. Mm-hmm. That they would understand me, you know. Yeah. And that was—I I think it was one of the the strongest, uh, uh, the, the strongest power that that, mov- that that movie had on people was that idea of if you if you're lucky, you can wind up in a nice house with a bunch of people who are just like you and have the same interests. And have to fight the same battles, yeah. you know, and you can do them together instead of alone. But it is the sort of brains over. I mean, it was the, it was that idea. Movies like that and Real mm. Genius, where it's like, ah, smart people making yeah. other people pay. Well, yeah. yes, it is in a way. And then you, at the same time, you look at it and you go, well, panty raids. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I can't think of anything more. Even though you <laughs> you know pouring hot stuff on the jocks, yeah. jock straps. Doesn't take huge brains. <laughs> no, um, but it did impress you and Jefferson and got you into the Trilam house. It did. So. Well, I mean, you know, at least the panty raid was a cover to install audiovisual equipment, yes. which after that's all really that's is what, what nerds do. They're that was the, the audiovisual there, department. Was basically having remote audiovisual right. in 1983 or four? Uh, three. Three, four. Yeah, Re- four. remote audio surveillance. Right. Yeah. Now we take it for granted. Mm-hmm. At the time, mm-hmm. you had to go to Radio Shack or find... There was no Radio Shack. You had to go to yeah. something else. I mean, I don't think Radio Shack even existed then. Well, it was, it was, definitely, uh, it was definitely a triumph technology. Yeah. I think the technological panty raid um, 
Uh, I'm just trying to justify this in the best way possible. <laughs> it's it's hard. No, because there was a robot. <laughs> oh, the robot. The panty yeah. raid was a red herring. <laughs> yes, the panty. Yeah, we if we could have done it without the panty raid, of course we would have. Of course, sure. But well, anyway, <laughs> <laughs> this is bullshit. Pan down. <laughs> <laughs> the ability to remotely pan down. <laughs> Come on, but the but. Between that movie and uh, Better Off Dead, which was another another movie that was a very seminal film for me, which but a lot gentler, a lot gentler. I mean, it was really it was really dark. It was dark, but it was a cartoon. Like that movie, Savage Steve. Yeah, you know, like he's a cartoonist. Right. Like having a movie that's essentially with live action cartoon characters. That you know, uh, I mean, Charles Dumar was a fucking great. <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, it was also the same. It was the same thing with with uh, with Better Off Dead because, I mean, Savage has that quality which I adore, which is this you know this wonderful odd humor that never becomes it never becomes cloyingly sentimental. Right, it's always a little. There's sentiment to it. There's heart to it. But then there's the surrealism which he did, he he did so well in yeah. both of the movies I thought yeah and know. but but that was uh, you know that he was influenced a great I, I was in that because of Revenge of the Nerds and Risky Business because he was a fan of those two movies and he wanted me in his movie oh wow that's why I was there that's great and then uh, it was I was we talked a little bit about this in San Francisco before we did the panel but I was sort of heartbroken to find out that Cusack will not. He has essentially disavowed those films, yeah, yeah, and won't take any. He did you hear the story? No, but yeah, they so. shot so they shot Better Off Dead, and then it's and I know this Savage Steve told the story. I think actually up at Sketchfest a few years ago, they shot Better Off Dead, and they said Cusack was great, and then they finished it, and then it almost immediately went into One Crazy Summer, and he had a deal to do two movies. With Savage, with Savage. Oh wow! The 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 uh, uh, one crazy summer, which wasn't called that then, was was supposedly a kind of sequel to Better Off Dead, and and Cusack was already scheduled to do them. Oh, interesting. What was it originally called? Um, I think it oh, was crazy like summer. it was like well, what I did on my summer vacation. I think it was what I did on oh, cool. my summer vacation. Cool. Well, <laughs> so. He while they're while, right while they're shooting one crazy summer they're about to start shooting one crazy summer they get the they get this cut of better off dead in mm. and so they do a screening and so they do a screening and then John John I guess, walked out just walked what? out of the screening and he then wouldn't out. talk to anyone for the rest of the filming was it well, all the same no, crew it, it wasn't that it wasn't that bad it was it was I I had thought that the screening was was here but but wherever it was. He was so angry and so, I guess, disappointed. It was not the movie that he was expecting. I don't know. It seemed like the movie that I read. But um, he felt that it was uh, juvenile or something. And, uh, and so when I got to Cape Cod to shoot the second movie, he had already gone through this. And he was... We talked about it briefly, but... No, he didn't dwell on it. It was not that he was, you know, refusing to talk to people or anything like that. In fact, he was. He would talk to Savage, but 
he would also not listen to Savage, and he would do whatever he wanted to do. Oh. And um, then after One Crazy Summer was done, uh, that was it, and he wouldn't have anything to do with anything, and he wouldn't publicize the movie. Whoa. All that kind of stuff. I know, because we almost, he almost did the podcast about a year and a half ago, and we had a phone conversation. He was really nice, really nice on the phone, really nice in emails. And this in the back of my head, I was just sort of clawing at me like, oh, if he does the podcast, I'm going to want to ask him about it, but I don't know if he's going to want to talk about it. And yeah. I don't, you know. Well, it would be interesting to see. I mean, it's possible. Somebody told me uh, recently that, that he had signed a poster of... Um, of better off dead or that's kind of huge. You know, then. Well, but I mean, that was huge because he literally would not sign anything. Yeah. I mean, somebody would hand him it and he'd push it away. Jeez. He would not, it was like, like a cross in front of a, maybe there was just more going on that we didn't, we don't understand, which is why I would want to ask him about it. But between that and one crazy summer and then risky business, Jesus Christ, you were in so many, and then moonlighting, like so much of that period. That was a good decade. That was. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you know, and also all really wildly different kinds of comedies. Like risky business was slick. Yeah. And one crazy summer and dark and slick and you know and. Really, the kind of um, I feel like that's when film, that's when the, the entertainment industry really kind of started to realize, like, oh, it's not just about adults. There is this teen, you know, uh, sort of. I mean, coming off yeah. Fast Times or you well, know, yeah. I mean, there had been a bunch of. I mean, the, the that wave had already started, but you know, the difference between something like Porky's and and something like Risky Business or even Revenge of the Nerds, it's pretty dramatic. So that and and Fast Times, of course, and you know, a lot of those those were all happening around the same time, and it was obvious. What, the thing about Risky Business that was different was it was shot like an art film. It was shot like a European art film. Yeah. And the first guy that Paul Brickman hired was a was a DP named Peter Sova, who was, uh, I can't remember from where, I, I, I don't remember in Europe, but some, somewhere he was European. But he was uh, he had just done um, um, Diner, oh, which wow. was you know sort of an adult type of movie like that. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and so that was how he got. Uh, risky business, but then he started kicking when we were shooting because he said, "You can't do this. You're shooting this like it's a sex movie. It's a sex movie. You shouldn't be shooting this like a. This is a teenage sex comedy. It's not an art film. Stop it. You know." <laughs> and they would have these arguments, Paul, and you know, Paul had planned this for seven years, and he knew every angle and every everything, every music cue, everything. And he wound up firing him, and oh, that's wow. why we wound up having three DPs on that movie. No way! Because then Ray Villalobos came in for a while to to do it, and then Bruce Surtees came in at the end to to finish it. So, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, but that was the thing is that it was it was at a moment where things were starting to change. You you were it was always possible for you to do teenage sex comedies, and it would always be possible. But it was also now possible to do it. For adults, right? Yeah, you know? and have it look really cool. Yeah, yeah, and then have a have a fucking Genesis song playing with this really cool, <laughs> yeah, train. Yeah. Uh, so between 
did, <laughs> it was a very good decade, but was it also, it also seems like all these projects had like one kind of sticking point to them as well, except for maybe Revenge of the Nerds, but then, because then with Moonlighting, was it, was the, was the, the, the Civil Shepherd Bruce Willis thing as epic as, or is that, was that blown up over the years? I don't think it was blown up over the years. I mean, it's not something I dwell on that much because, uh, you know, it, it was what it was. I've never had that experience since. Oh, that's good. By, by the way, or before, where the atmosphere is so toxic because these people hate each other but also don't want to be on this show anymore. (laughs) And the the combination was pretty intense. Which sucks because, you know, as as I've said a million times... It's it's hard enough just to get a job and then have it go well, somewhere, my... and it's like, come on, can we just enjoy this a little bit, please? Look, that, was, that was entirely my position too. You know, I'm I had started out as an actor on stage. I'd done you know like eight years of stage work before I did Risky Business, so I had all of that time going from you know like off Broadway and and regional theaters and dinner theaters and tours and all that kind of stuff. I know what it was like, you know, to not make good money doing yeah. something you love and then you start doing movies and suddenly you're making money and uh then i had no, done no television i started moonlighting was my first tv show and fuck <laughs> you know i mean it was like making a movie every week yeah it was so well written and so well shot and you know, they had great people on it and bruce and sybil were great and elise and all that it was really terrific and at the same time, these people are going... But I remember, Bruce, first day, this is true, first day I was on the set, before I was of, officially hired, um, the first day I was on the set, Bruce is there, and I'm introduced to Bruce and Sybil. And uh, Bruce and I start talking, and he says, so what are you doing here? <laughs> I said, what do you mean? He says, you do movies. What do you do in television for? I said, I don't know. This seems like a good show from what I've you know, been on already for a year and yeah. a half or something. And he says, man, if I could do movies, I'd be out of here so fast. Oh, shit. <laughs> oh, no. And now this is 1980, what, seven, probably at that point. So, you know, it's three years since since Revenge of the Nerds, four years since Risky Business, and I've done a bunch of movies which no one is going to be doing 30th anniversary screenings of it <laughs> anywhere, in addition to the cool ones, were the ones that were really horrible. And, uh, and so, you know, I'm thinking, well, what a weird thing. I mean, yeah, movies are great, but I knew at that point he must be making a you know, good chunk of money on a show that's great and highly respected, and why would you complain? Well, I think there's, I mean, look, you know, to hear you came from the theater, you know, you've worked Mm. for for eight years. And so to you, it was more about, I don't know, theater, film, television, whatever. As long as I, as long as I enjoy the process, like that's where the, but then it sounds like he just wanted to be a movie star. Well, he, but he had started in the the theater too, in off Broadway in New York, same time I was there. I never saw him. But I remember hearing about shows that he did in New York. So he had started there too. But he had started there and made a really big jump. And then 
And I, for me, it was a you know matter of you know years. Would it be a dumb sketch idea to go back and reenact like the plays that he did, and they're all these insane like diehard type plays? (laughs) 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 Shoot out all the glass. Bad prop glass. Yeah, blowing up. Yeah. So he did come for the theater. Yes. The action theater. Action theater. Action theater. No, no, he did True West. He did the Sammy. uh, The uh, what do you call it? Uh, what's his name? Sam Shepard. Sam, who? Sam Shepard. Sam Shepard, yeah. Uh, he did True West, which he was not in the original cast, but he was in the replay. So, I mean, he did stuff, hmm. you know. I mean, he was around. And I, but I remember when... But he was best known as a bartender. That's right. Because he and John Goodman hung out at this bar in, in I can't remember the name of it, but it was the big bar at the time. And Bruce was the bartender, you know, oh, wow. a very popular bartender. At this place, <laughs> wow! So That's he crazy. just whatever he does, he just ha- he's just. Well, a- I mean, once once we were doing moonlighting, I, you know, people would say, "You're working with Bruce." I say, "Yeah, I, I knew Bruce from New York." I said, "Oh, what were you in with him?" He said, "The bar." <laughs> <laughs> he was the bartender, and he was great. Well, he did those. Was it Bacardi commercials? There was some sort Bartles of a Bartle. Did he do Bartles and James? Sure did. Mm-hmm. It was Bartles and James. That's the wine cooler. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's right. Yeah. 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 You could crack open it. Like it was the yeah. that really. I mean, he looked like a bartender. Yeah. He really looked like a New York. Well, apparently drink. he was, uh, <laughs> and and very good at his job. And so, um, was that ultimately? When did you start to realize in the run of moonlighting, like, oh, we're fucked. Oh, he's going to go off. They. It was uh, because when I joined, it was still okay, kind of. So I would say six months in. Oh, wow. Something wow. when it started to turn really bad. And then, uh, you know, people would just not show up and storm off and <laughs> throw things and Damn. all that stuff. And so it would be back to my trailer, you know, for another... Ten hours until they sent me home with no internet. What do no you internet, do with your no cell phone? What do you yeah. do with your time? You should have seen my trailer. My trailer was three deep in books and, I, <laughs> and a tape player, of course. so I could listen to music, and that was it. I mean, that was all there was. My God! But so my God, I got a lot of reading done. <laughs> Thank you, Moonlighting. So I'm a better the- person now. <laughs> I'm a better read person yes. thanks to you. Yeah. Moonlighting allowed me to really absorb some of the classics. That's right. <laughs> I, did, I discovered the Russians during that. <laughs> I mean, it, it just, I can't, I've been very fortunate that I've never really had that experience. Yeah, well, it's, you know, it had a funny, it had a funny after effect on me. Because when I was doing Moonlighting, I then went to do, at one point, I went to do um, uh, Nerds 2 mm-hmm. in Florida. And... So I remember this so vividly. So I'd been going through uh, this this nightmare at moonlighting with them, and then I went and I'm shooting and I'm with my friends. You know, it's all the guys from the first movie, and we were shooting the first day. We were shooting a scene on a plane, an airplane, and I'm sitting at a, a seat in the airplane and I have a, a, a something. And they we'd done it in the master and they were coming in for my close-up. So all the guys had been pushed off of the plane and they were they were setting up and they were like, okay, we're ready. And the first uh, first says, uh, we're ready for uh, sending the, the guys, uh, we're ready for Curtis's close-up. And I went, no, 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 that's okay. I'll just do, I'll do it myself. Oh. And I remember so well this guy stopping and looking at me 
and then saying, it's okay. <laughs> They're not going to mind doing your off-camera. Oh, man. And I was so used to not having either of them be there. Oh, weird. That you always had to give your off-camera, no matter who you were. The biggest guest stars they had, you, you know, they would come in, they would shoot Bruce and Sybil, two-shot singles, overs, Bruce and Sybil would leave, and then whoever it was who was there had to do their, their off-camera, <laughs> their they- close-ups to the... Usually it was the script supervisor. Sometimes Elise Beasley and I felt so bad oh, that we man. would go in and read with these people. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> so they could actually have actors yeah. to read with. I mean, that was the way it was. Did, oh. they get, did they get stunt people to do, like, their make-out scenes? How the fuck did they ever get the two of them together? Well, they only, that only happened at the end. And as you remember, that was a pretty angry... I mean, they were practically beating each other. On the, and they did use stone people for a lot of it. But, uh, but that was the effect that it had on me, that once I left that environment, it was like having you know, post-traumatic stress syndrome. Sure. Is that I was, I was saying, time to bring in the other actors. No, 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 don't, don't bring yeah, them yeah, in. It's yeah. fine. I'll do it <laughs> Don't myself. bother them. Wow. But then you sort of calmed down a little bit on, on that. I mean, that was yes. essentially... Then I said, like a what am I doing? I have to relax. You were literally on vacation for Nerds in Paradise. You were literally sort on of, a vacation. Yeah, yeah kind of. <laughs> and, then, uh, and then so what, what happened from there? Like, what was it... What... Well, I went back to Moonlighting and, uh, you, know, it got, you know, everything sort of went from bad to worse. And... Uh, and then it was over, and I sort of was at sea for a little while. I mean, it was there was a bit of a hangover from that decade because it really had started with me first getting my regular, the first regular work I had in the theater, doing interesting stuff, and then Risky Business, and then all of the rest of them, and then Moonlighting. That experience was so intense and so unpleasant. And I kept working, but, you know... Yeah, I was, I was, you know, I went through a divorce at that point. Oh, jeez. I mean, it was like everything was not good. So you were, you, you were coming out of the 80s the same way that most, most people, people were. Yeah. That's right. Out of the 80s, just like, <laughs> how much drugs did we do? Yes, exactly. Yeah. What happened? Right. Yes. That, Who was president? Uh, like, yeah. just a sort of like, what the, the 90s yeah. were like. Looking what? back on it, it's just this blur. Of, <laughs> you can imagine it's like coming into the 90s where it's like, Glam rock, like all of the politics yeah. are different. Everything changes, and it's grunge, and it's. Yeah. So you imagine people emerging from the '80s, just like wiping the coke mm. off their face, <laughs> coming out of these neon clothes. How long like, were we in there? What the yeah. <laughs> you okay? Yeah. yeah. Is, it, right? is daylight already? I don't know, man. I don't know where I am. It's Who so true. Yeah. It's so true. So when you were, when you were doing, um, did you ever want to go? Did you ever go back to the theater? Oh, I, I was still in the theater then. I mean, yeah. I, you know, on, on summer hiatus, I would go do plays back east, and I, I never stopped. I, I continued to do plays up until uh, the last one was about seven years ago, was, which was a Sam Shepard play, oh. oddly enough. Bringing it around. Was it difficult to... I mean, because you probably don't expect... I mean, you know, when you do a movie, and it's like, oh, I'm just an actor, I'm hired to do this as the character, and then all of a sudden it's like... Booger! Like everywhere you yeah. go, is does that sort of get in the way of the theater stuff? When you're like, no, no. I'm another. Okay, not good. really. I mean, a lot of the people who come and see me in a play are not going to be, you know, necessarily. <laughs> <laughs> 
you know, uh, guys. Uh, guys. I can't wait to see no Booger in Death of a Salesman, bro. It's going to be the fucking best. <laughs> yeah. just, you're not going to see that. Yeah. You're not going to. You're not going to be seeing. You're just. I am Willie Loman in the background. Hair yeah. pie. Like, yeah. 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 Come on, please keep this. Can we right. Be silent yeah. for this. Yeah. <laughs> no, that never happened for for that. I mean, it, that has happened in my life. Of course, but it doesn't happen <laughs> when I'm doing a almost play. worse when it's yeah. in your life. Where you're like, you're on a date and some. Oh, please, can I just live my yeah. please, please or. Booger! I mean, the, the, the guys yeah. you know, with, with, with no neck and, you know. <laughs> I was so delighted, to, which I did not know before, that the, uh, someone asked you about the belch, mm. the infamous belch, and you said that it was, in fact... A camel orgasming. <laughs> it took the sound what? of a it camel. It is the sound of a camel orga- orgasming. <laughs> because they couldn't find anyone on the planet who could do the belch the way they wanted it and as long as they wanted it. And <laughs> so they started looking at recordings of the animal kingdom. And they found... And Busfield was there when they... This is the only reason I know it, is Busfield was there when they were doing post. And he, they said, listen to this. It's the sound of a camel orgasming. And <laughs> the thing that's amazing about it is that somebody actually said, you know... One place we haven't looked, Animal Orgasms. Where's that album? You know? I think Nimoy released uh, their yeah, yeah. art thing that Jesus. someone... Oh, my God. Just someone going, well, you know, like if anyone says, well, you know, yeah. and then that comes up, like, well, how would you, why would you ever... And this was not at a time where... The whole world of everything was available at our fingertips. No, it yeah. was on you know it was on long playing records and and that kind of thing. And they went well, you know, there is this camel orgasm yeah. which might be what we want. The camel orgasms like this. <laughs> <laughs> the gorilla orgasms like this. Oh my god, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Give me another chance. Um. <laughs> well, the the, I, the the funny thing to me about like. Would you sort of make that point earlier about like, but they really were doing panty raids, but it's it, where, <laughs> but the way that Lewis wins Betty over is that he almost—it's a little gray. It's a little gray. It's I don't even—I don't know if it's even gray. Really. <laughs> okay, it's very dark. But just the idea yeah. that when he comes up, that she doesn't go, "Well, you're under arrest." Yeah, <laughs> that's how good he was, Chris. <laughs> or the fact that they wouldn't get expelled for putting pictures of her tits yeah. on the bottom of a pie tin. Yeah. Right. But at the time, as a kid, I was like, "I'm in. I'm in for all of it." Yeah. Well, of totally course, makes sense of course, you would be. Yes, of course. Sure. Um, but I mean, it was one of those things where, at, even at the time, there were. Moments where I was looking at what we were doing, and on the one hand, had this you know really fairly progressive you know message, which is what that movie really is about. I mean, that's what it was always intended to be about. The writers were intending a uh, a metaphor uh, for prejudice and tolerance and so on, and uh, and there are those things, you know, so that on the one hand you've got. You, you've got uh, this group of guys who accept a gay man into their group without any question. And uh, at the same time, you're playing the gay man as the most outrageous, you know, stereotype 
I mean, it's it's so beyond you can't even believe it. Yeah. And there are a lot of things like the business with Betty on the moon right. and, and and those kinds of things where you know in the panty raid, you know there there are things that were very much of its time sure. when it came to how you depicted minorities or how you depicted women and all that kind of thing, which we were not on board the bus at that point. Mm. Um, but, but hopefully, you know, most of it is still. Accepted as you know. Well, it would we be, meant well. It would yeah. be a much. I, not, <laughs> I mean, I have, I have heard. I had heard titterings of like, oh, they're going to remake Revenge of the Nerds, or there's going to be. They another... tried. They yeah. did. They did remake it. Well, they started it, and then it didn't. It fell apart. It would be they, a totally different movie now. They pulled the plug on it. They the the network uh, the um, studio canceled it. Oh, good. Like three weeks into shooting. Oh, wow. Good. They actually had the script. Robert read it. They had a they had a script. I can't remember. I'm not going to even guess who the director was. He was somebody I'd heard of. Uh, and they cast it, and they went to Duke University. And that was where they were shooting it, at Duke. Oh. And, right. So they, now, Duke has not read the script, apparently, or read a, 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 a watered-down version of the script, because they were in the process of going through that uh, gang rape trial. Sure. Right? And... Suddenly, somebody finds this script and goes, "Do you realize we are going through this gang rape trial, and we're allowing this garbage to be filmed here?" And uh. it was apparently extreme. I mean, that script was the sex and the the. I mean, it was. Were you guys you involved with it in any way? Not no, at no, all. no, no. Of course not. Not at all. Good, because no. not everything needs to be remade. No, and in fact, when we heard, we just were kind of, oh, geez, really? Yeah. Mm. And, and because you know that from anything in the 40s, whether it's horror, in the 80s, whether it's horror films or, or sex comedies or anything else, what has happened in the interim, you know, the R that, that, uh, that Revenge of the Nerds was, the R now, mm-hmm. you know, would be just... And the sex comedies of the 40s. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they were... I'm going to get you when you sleep in a, in a different bed. <laughs> That's right. No. That's right. You're going to be expecting an, a, a, a toddler. <laughs> there's no, no... There's nothing you can... No. Look at you that. go from zero to 60 and then 60 to 500 and... I mean, it's, uh, it is pretty re- remarkable. It is pretty remarkable. But it, it really was... Um, it'll know, never happen again. It'll never happen again. No, it'll never happen again. It, very, it was very much of its time. Yeah. Even the whole, I don't even think you'd get away now with what the fuck is a frush now. No, I mean, it, it would. Brian, no. <laughs> and Brian, Brian was hilarious about it at the, uh, at the panel. Yeah. He's, he's really, he's a really funny guy. Oh, he's, he's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. It, well, I mean, that was, again, uh, what the fuck is a frush came out of an improv that he and I did because <laughs> there was nothing for us to shoot. At that moment, and so he and I had been told by the director, we were on the cot, the cots next to each other in the gym, to come up with something. <laughs> and he went to shoot Bobby and uh, and Anthony, and then he came back, and somebody had, we'd gotten a deck of cards, and we just started doing that routine, and that was what wound up being the running gag with Booger and Takashi is Booger is constantly screwing with Takashi. <laughs> and it all came out of that. Oh, that's great. So when you when you were doing when you started in the theater, what what types of roles did you like? What did you what I, your... it wasn't a question of like or dislike. I mean, I I studied at a, an academy of uh which was an English 
classical tradition sort of academy of dramatic arts, a two-year course uh, at a place in Michigan. And uh, uh, that was my training. And then I went into whatever I went into. If it was Shakespeare, I did Shakespeare. If it was Neil Simon, I did Neil Simon. I would do Pinter. I would do Pinter or Arthur Miller or whatever. And I had, you know, a long string of, of various types of, of, uh, of plays. And uh, that was what I was going to do. I didn't think it was ever going to be different. Hmm. And when Risky Business came along, it was such a shock because, I, in fact, I might, have, I might have told you this before, but during Risky Business, I kept a journal every day. Because I wanted to remember what making a movie was going to be like. Because oh, wow. <laughs> you never thought it would happen again? Right. That's exactly well, right. Have you looked at the journal recently? I have. How does it hold up? <laughs> it's interesting. <laughs> now, it, what's interesting about it is not that it, it would be able to inform me about m- the process of movie making. But what's interesting is what I write about other people. Oh, which shit. Which is the most, you know... Most fun thing. <laughs> <laughs> Were you auditioning for uh, movies uh, during that time? A couple of times I did, yeah, for a few. I remember one that I auditioned for was Lady Hawk that oh, Matthew wow. Broderick got. Yeah, yeah. And I had auditioned for that. And, I'd, you know, probably a few others. I don't remember exactly now. Yeah. The biggest one was Amadeus. <gasps> I, I, uh, that was later on, and I had auditioned for the Broadway play because I'd been in a, <clears throat> an off-Broadway play which had done well. So I had first auditioned for Peter Schaffer on the stage of the Broadhurst Theater, and it was so thrilling. It was so thrilling. I mean, he came down, and you know, I would do a scene, and he would come down, and he would talk to me about the research he'd done on Mozart. He said, you realize at this point in his life, and he said, I mean, it was such a, one of the great auditions ever. Didn't get it. Then they were making the movie. I was brought in. I went to Milos Forman's apartment uh, on uh, Central Park, overlooking Central Park, and just sat with him and read with him. And then wound up doing a. I did a um, a screen test with Christine Ebersol. Uh, in New Jersey right wow. after that and uh, did a whole bunch of scenes in full costume and makeup wow, and the whole geez. deal and that all exists somewhere because he never let go of anything but uh, so I you know, that was the closest I came to a career making role yeah. and didn't get but you know what it was so amazing and it was such an incredible experience yeah. I never had a chance to regret it. It was just, wow, that was something. I mean, it's hard, it's hard to, um, you know, at a, at a certain point, it, especially with, with, with acting, um, if, if you get really close, this is what I tell people. I've told you this before, too. When yeah, you're auditioning. Yeah. If you start consistently getting close, that really says, like, you're good enough for this job. You're yeah, on maybe. the right track. And in the end, if you don't get it, a lot of times... It's for reasons that don't have anything to do with you. Yeah, but I think also people have can can have trouble with that, and and if you if you don't have the determination and you don't have the patience, uh, the fact that you come that close and lose it a few times is enough can be enough for some people to just drive them out of it. Oh yeah, there's yeah, no question. But I also feel but like they weren't meant to be there in the first yeah, place. Yeah, that's right. Clearly. If it because I feel like if if you are really 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 obsessed with doing something then n- nothing right. should I mean not nothing. I mean obviously, you know, if you get hit by a train, but I mean most things 
would not keep you from it because you'd go, well, I'll just figure it out. I don't give a shit. I mean, like, I right. I had that for years where it was just like, you know, I would test three or four times a year for pilots, and it's like, oh, I got Chloe. I think I'm going to get it. Oh, no, they gave it to Z- Oh, Oh, I got to give it, you know, and just constantly that up and down and... You know, See, that's funny because that still happens to me. <laughs> I'm, I'm not joking. I cannot get cast in a pilot to save my fucking life. It, to this day, I will. If I go in for an audition for a pilot, it will get right to the network, and then and then. They, but usually, it's the you know. Uh, yeah, who, it doesn't matter. Yeah. I mean, it's just you know, it reached a point where I went, okay, well, this is clearly not where I'm meant to go. Sure. I'm meant to, you know, come in as a guest star and then they keep me. Yeah. Because just the if, right, if it's up to the network, they will never allow or it. Or the right yeah. thing. Or the right thing has to, to yeah. come along. But, I mean, you know, I'm a character actor and really, I, you know, I mean, uh, being in, in that kind of a role that would carry something I, on television, I don't see. But, you know, it, it's, it's, just, it's just amazing how that kind of thing can happen. And you do hit a, a, a wall after a while where you go, all right, well... I'll just stick to what I'm doing because that's that's crazy. <laughs> but I also, you know, <clears throat> so we sort of had this conversation with Christopher Lloyd too about like someone. There's a Deadwood style role where someone's oh, yeah. kind of like you're gonna put you in it, and people are gonna be like, "Oh my god!" and then yeah. be so blown <laughs> away because you're a fantastic actor, and they're gonna see you doing what you've been training to do your entire right. life. Well, the, the funny thing was I sort of was hoping that that was going to be what happened with Ray because Ray was me doing a role, the role of Ahmed Erdogan, and doing it, doing something where I looked nothing like myself. It was like the dramatic role in an Academy Award-winning movie that would be the one that would help people over the hump and say... Well, it turns out everybody thought it was Clint Howard because <laughs> I, sh- I shaved my fucking head and suddenly everyone says, man, could you believe Clint Howard in that fucking movie? Oh, I had shit. no idea. That was me, Cameo! <laughs> that was me acting! Can you keep it down? We're talking about Clint Howard over here. Anyway, uh, you see the ice cream man? Oh, shit. How great was Clint Howard as Chaka in Land yeah. of the Lost? <laughs> <laughs> he was great in Westworld. Just to keep on messing up. No, but, I mean, it was like, it was like, finally, I'm doing something that looks, that is so far from me that I was really in that zone, you know, where I was shaving and the whole deal. Yeah. And it was too far away. And no one said, oh, look what Curtis Armstrong said. So they didn't connect that? They didn't... They, they didn't, didn't know it was me. <laughs> God damn it. Well, now they'll know. Mm. But I do... But there, but there is such a... You know, there is this sort of television renaissance that's happening, I mm-hmm. think. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, I really... I really, really, really feel like I, I know it. I know it feels like oh, so close, oh, so close. But it's just because the right thing. Uh, yeah. No. You know what? As far as I'm concerned, that's not even what I'm talking about. I'm I'm having fun with this. But the truth is, I look back on my career. Uh, it's you know 40 years wow. since I started in the theater. So I'm looking at this and thinking. I could not have asked, literally could not have asked for a better career. My career has been fine. 
And I don't regret the fact that no one has ever cast me as a serious dramatic actor. It doesn't matter to me. The point is, I have continued to work. I've continued to enjoy what I'm doing, you know, for the most part. <laughs> and, and, you know, uh, that's, that's, that's it. I mean, it's, as long as... And, you know, the fact that at 60, I am working more than I was when I was 40... And in fact, more than I was when I was 20. So I guess that's awesome. It's got to be okay, you know, yeah. at that point. How's, uh, how's King of the Nerds been? King of the Nerds has been the most fun. Uh, I mean, I never dreamed I would be in a reality show ever. I mean, it was, it was just so far from, from my plan. But Robert Carradine and I came up with this idea a few years ago. And we were able to sell it to TBS. We are in our second season now, and we're hoping momentarily um, to get a pickup for a third. Nice. And um, there is something unique about this experience. It's not acting, obviously, uh, but I'm as an executive producer. The experience is a lot of fun. Seeing it from the other side, from casting and budget meetings and challenge meetings, and you know all of the stuff that you're involved with when you're a producer of something. And I love the nerds. I just <laughs> love the damn nerds. Both seasons. I want to take. All of them home. <laughs> uh, it's just, I... Well, that makes me happy because I didn't know... Just when I heard the show was first, I didn't really have a lot of details on it. And I sort of... I did that. I kind of got a little suspicious. I'm like, then I'm fucking making fun of nerd, You know, because just that Hollywood has never really known... The entertainment business has never really known exactly what to do with the nerd cluster. <laughs> and and <laughs> in the, you know, in the 90s... Like, in the old days, it was um, it was very much uh, a derisive. Their butt of the jokes. Yeah. Their you know, and so it, and everything is you know things have changed now. Well, a bit and uh, yeah, and and two things about that. One is that what Robert and I said to everybody we talked to. And I continue to say to this day with the people, our production partners and so on, is if you ever don't know what you're doing with this show, go back and watch the last scene in Revenge of the Nerds Mm -hmm. because that's – that encapsulates, encapsulates the whole thing. Yeah. That's the tolerance. It's the acceptance. It's the nerd values. It's the whole deal. And that's one thing. Second thing. First season, we're looking at people to invite to be guest stars, nerd celebrities, yep. basically. Top of everybody's list is George Takei. Yep. I mean, oh, oh my. You know, I mean, oh, my. Oh, my. <laughs> and George is, you know, uh, people, whenever we approach them, would say yes or no for whatever reason. Not George. George said, well, I will do it. But only if I'm assured that they're not mocking nerds. Oh, I, you just love George Takei. And the the casting director said, "Well, no. That's the whole idea is that we celebrate the nerds, not mock them." And he said that he appreciated that because, to some degree, he said, "My career is thanks to nerds, and I'm not going to be part of anything that makes he's the stupid. loveliest guy in the world." And of course, he came back. This season, not just as a guest, but as a challenge. He became last week's challenge, freeing George Takei. Was. <laughs> so this was, 
I mean, you know, from one of the great nerd icons of our day, um, it was quite a, a quite a wonderful. The first, the first time I met George, um, I I said to Kai, even though I knew it was to Kay, because I was so nervous. Yeah, I was like George Takai. I mean, and he goes, No, 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 no. It's pronounced Takay. <laughs> it rhymes with gay. <laughs> As in, it's okay to be Takay. That's what he said to me. I was like, ah, I fucking love this guy. That's so much. wonderful. That's yeah. Great. When yeah. was that? Um, this was a couple years ago. Oh my god. Yeah. Okay. You know when I met him for the first time? Do we have a second? Sure. We have time. Uh, time. First time I met him, Detroit, 1973. They had the first Star Trek convention ever to be held in the city of Detroit, and one of the, I'm sure it was relatively few at that point in the country. And I went, being a big Star Trek fan, I went down there, and it was so small that it was held literally in three rooms at a, at a hotel. What year did you say this was? 73. 73. Holy shit! 73. Proto nerds! I, yeah, I know. And I went down there. I was going to the academy at the time. And I went down there. And one room was Hawker's room. And there was nothing. I mean, they had nothing to show. What was being made? What were you hawking in 1973? Then they had a room where all day they had a, a, a projector up running like 16 millimeter prints oh, of the geez. show. Holy shit. Including... The much rumored blooper reel, which I saw for the first time in that room. And then the last room was where the cast was. And the people who came to this thing were George, Walter Koenig, and James Doohan. And the three of them are in that room, and there's nobody there. I mean, you know, people are trickling in. They finish watching the, 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 they come in and they buy a poster and they have them sign the poster. But it was the most thrilling moment for me to be in that room with them. And because there was no one there, the turnout was so terrible, there was nobody there, so you could just sit there. You know, you'd sit there and lean up against the table and talk and say, you know, in that episode... <laughs> you know, and, and they would just talk and talk and talk, and it was... A big thrill. I wonder if, if, if George ever leaned over and said, someday hundreds of thousands of people will be here. <laughs> no, right. come on. Well, I think, imagine. I mean, they've been flown from Los Angeles to, this, to Detroit. And they get there and there's nobody there. And then, you know, you, you fast forward a decade or two and you but can't get in. Shit gets yeah. crazy. I, I Just thinking about the idea of being... A uh, proto nerd in those days, and walking into a room and seeing a blooper reel, which you may have heard about, or even if you didn't know about it, and then knowing like, as soon as I walk out of this room, I may never see that again. Oh, that's of just, right. Of just trying to absorb every, I just got to yeah. remember every second of it. Every that's second right. Of it. That's exactly. Because we don't right. have the internet. I can't, you can't take it for granted. For me, I still hadn't seen the entire first series. Because I had been living overseas. I came back in 67, which was the year it went off the air. So I was catching, you know, the reruns of that last summer. I had never seen the pilot, you know, oh, wow. the, you know the Captain Christopher Pike thing. Because you had to... I had never no seen any of them. You just, so had, to get, you just had to get lucky to hit it. Nothing. get hit in the face with it. Yeah. And when it went off of syndication, when it, it stopped running the, the reruns, you were, you were fucked. You didn't see it. <laughs> but I remember that blooper reel of going, this is... 
godlike. <laughs> I'm seeing Captain Kirk fuck up his lines. I mean, the idea of such a thing didn't exist. I, it Not was James Tiberius. Kirk. Yeah. Come on. He always knows the score. They're laughing. They're laughing like human beings. I mean, it was amazing. That must have been cool as an actor, too, to just uh, see these kind of you know, larger-than-life figures and then go and just see them behind a folding yeah. table. Yeah. You're like, oh, they're just guys. Yeah. Well, no, that was not the same. It wasn't like that because oh, okay. they were not just guys. They yeah. were the crew of the USS Enterprise. <laughs> Does stuff like that sort of mold or help inform who you are when people yeah. get fan out? Because you're incredibly personable and really sweet and, and it, you seem... Like if someone just came up, you'd go, you hey, how's it going? Yeah. You know, like does, well, that, does that help? Yeah, it does help because, you know, there are, I've seen both sides of that and how it can be with people who are really horrible and people who are really nice. I've been very lucky. The people that I've met who whom I've admired I have always been really, you know, lovely, generous people with their time and so on. And they don't get mad at me because I'm a fan of theirs or anything. I, so I, 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 you know, I, I like that and I appreciate that. And on the other hand, I've seen the other thing, which is just too horrible to imagine. Do you ever find sometimes? I find sometimes that I, um, I try to make up for other experiences, or, or I've seen, I've seen at Comic Con like people get blown off by famous people that I like before, and I happen to be in the vicinity, and I'll like try to save it somehow. Like, oh, hey, come on, let's all, you know, like just try yeah. to so that they don't come away from that experience feeling like. Oh man, that guy that I really liked was really shitty. To, you know, like just trying to trying to distract yeah. him or yeah, something. Yeah, sure. I it, believe me, it's it is something that you feel because why 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 do you do that? What is the point of doing that? You know, I mean, I I talk to people all the time. You know, who've who've you know been working with people who are very famous people, and some of them I have worked with, and you know they. They are so mean. They're mean to, you know, these women who are, you know, assistant costume designers and, you know, you know, third, you know, production assistants and stuff. And they're yelling at them. Why would you do that? What, does it really make you feel that much better to be shitty to people? No, I think they just, they're just unhappy to begin with. And it's just like, blah, yeah. blah, blah, blah. That's just how, it's that's part just how of, it comes it's out. It's part of what, it, it's there anyway. I was talking to somebody about this the other day. It is there. And and when you get to a certain point and you don't have to be nice to people anymore, then you say, I've been nice to people. Now I'm going to just blow them off because I don't care. Sure. Well, you just you have to also you also have to keep reminding yourself that um, you're really lucky to be doing what you're doing. And then also what it was like when you didn't get to do these things, you know, so it's. No, I know. There it's is really a, uh, there it, is a responsibility. There's, there's a responsibility to to not be a fucking total cock because yeah. you just have to make sure that you know. Because I think it's a slippery. I think it can happen before people realize it's happening. I always think also that for me, because I because I'd started in the theater and I didn't make risky business until I was almost thirty. So risky business, I'd already had a, a work ethic imbued in me I'd already you know I I was a grown up mm-hmm. at that point and to the extent that any man is a grown up at 29 mm-hmm. um, I was one so then you know whereas if, today if you were making risky business today you would cast it with you know 17 year olds 18 sure. year olds 
you wouldn't cast it with a cast of people who are 29 and 30 years old. No, you'd put Zac Efron and then Jonah Hill. Well, they're already actually too old for that. But at the time, yes, (laughs) that's what you did. Yeah. Is is you would, you know, because that's what they do now. And, uh, And then those people are getting all of the money and all of the women and all of the drugs and all of that kind of stuff is going on. And I, if they can manage it, I God bless them. But I don't know how. <laughs> it's yeah. I don't either. I don't know how anyone maintains. Well, I guess that most people don't. Most people don't. Well, at least they, they fuck themselves up for a while, at least. And, yeah. But, but it's hard. I mean, you know, when you're, a, when you're that age and you're getting all of that attention and all of that spotlight and you can't do anything wrong and you can't do anything for yourself, you've essentially gone from your parents' house to the house of CAA or whatever it is where everything is done for you and you don't know how to get to the airport if you're not being driven, yeah. all that kind of stuff. I mean, how, what kind of a fucking life is that? I don't know. Well, it's, and, and almost, it's, almost, it's almost not even their fault. Because it isn't. They, I mean, it is to a degree, but it's also not because it's like, oh, this is what they've been conditioned to. This is what they think life is. And right. then when it t- gets taken away, then, you know, then shit gets really crazy. Yeah. Really, really dark and crazy. Yeah. I guess, you know, it is, that, that is one thing that, you know, if someone who's really young is like, oh, I really just want to make it as like, you know, if you make it a little bit later in your life, that's, that's okay, okay too. Yeah. That is way okay. And maybe better. Yeah. I would say that's probably true. Because it's just too true. hard. It's just too hard to navigate. And especially, especially in, you know, in the seventies and the eighties where it's not, we weren't really as socially conscious as we are now. No. And didn't really give a shit like, oh, yeah, fuck that guy. You know, he didn't yeah, – whatever. He didn't show up for work. Oh, he's dead. Fine. Whatever. Who cares? You know, now it's like, no, we need to kind of help people and foster them and hold their hand a bit more and let them get therapy and help. And, you know, like we're, we're – I feel like we're not perfect, but we're, I feel like we're a little bit better now than we were Maybe. Maybe. I mean, I had done a movie in – I remember this is an interesting uh, uh, angle on that. I was doing a movie in Spain in 1985 with Alan Arkin. <gasps> oh, wow. which, what movie were we doing with Alan Arkin? Yeah, very good. Thank you. Um, and, and it was the most exciting thing because I adored Alan Arkin. And uh, I remember we were on a bus going to a location – and the director is on the bus, and he's, we're waiting, and we're late. And he's going, what's the matter? What's going on here? Harvey Miller, his name was. He died a number of years ago. But what's going on? Why are we waiting? And this woman comes out of the, of the hotel, and she's holding one of our makeup women who's sobbing and hysterical. And Harvey goes, what, what's going on? And, and the, somebody jumps up and says, Harvey, this is terrible, but... But one of but her sister was on a plane that just took off from from Madrid and crashed, oh. and she doesn't know. And Harvey says, "Was any of our film on it?" Oh no! Oh, <laughs> and the producer no. was there and said, "Harvey, you don't mean that." He says, "I do mean that. I don't know these people." Uh. And I've always I've always remembered that as sort of an interesting thing to try to avoid yeah (laughs) i feel like you're safe at this point you're probably not oh yeah no 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 i that's probably not going to be i I would not be camera guy i think no one on the bus was capable of that except harvey oh and you sort of had to know harvey to appreciate it but he was that was you know the people are people and it's a weird situation but 
So what is it that you're, you know, what's your sort of takeaway from everything? I mean, it's the idea that you're working more than you had before at age 60 and you're totally appreciative of your career, like when you sort of look back and go, aha, like what's your ultimate takeaway from everything? I, just that I think uh, it took me a long time to realize I had a career. I didn't realize I was going from one thing to the next, and I was too focused on whatever it was I was doing to realize how lucky I was that I was still doing things. <laughs> and I was actually doing a show with an actor who uh, I, he'd asked what I was doing, and I said, ah, oh, you know, not much. I'm doing this thing and this thing, but, you know, it's not, you know, and I was sort of denigrating what I was doing at that point, this is in the 90s sometime. And he said, why do you do that? Why don't you realize you have a career that people my age would give anything to have. You know, you don't... I mean, he completely took me down and made me realize what... Which I hadn't intended, but I realized what I sounded like. And a lot of the times now that I look back on a career that has lasted this long, I realize there have been times where I've been unhappy with the trajectory of it or the speed with which I was going from one, whatever it was, and how ridiculous it is and how small it is to think of it in those terms. And now, as a result of of, of being able to open my head up to that a little bit, I look back and I go, fuck. That was a good career. I mean, to the fact that it's still going on now and I've had that wonderful run of all sorts of different things, you can't beat that. Now, the only thing that could have made that speech more poignant and better is if you looked at us and then opened your mouth to and unleash a camel a huge, orgasm burp. <laughs> and believe me, if I could do it, I would. I mean, people must have been putting you on the, do it, do the burp. No, I can't. They uh, still do, it, do. Do it. No, I didn't. It wasn't. A woman did it in San Francisco. Remember San that? Francisco. She had this woman stood up and said, I can beat you in a belching well, that's contest. That's why you told the story, yeah. And, and I, like, said, I said, you could, actually. <laughs> I don't know how, how you bel- belch, but I don't. Yeah. I'm actually a camel in disguise, and I'm about to yeah. come. <laughs> um, well, Curtis, where, where can people, are you, uh, are you on the tweets? Or I'm you- on the tweets. I'm, on Cur- uh, I'm Curtis's booger. Nice. And now, I want to make sure you understand, it's not possessive. It's not Curtis's Curtis booger. Is. <laughs> it's Curtis is mm-hmm. booger one Kurt, verb of being. Kurt is is booger. Oh, now I'm now I'm confused. So Curtis he's, is uh, booger. He's on Twitter uh, on at Clint Curtis Howard. Is, oh, at Clint Howard. <laughs> but it's been really great having you here, and good thank good, you and so good much. Luck with uh, good luck with King of the Nerds, and um, and we hope to have Thursday you nights. Thursday nights on TBS. On TBS, very funny. Are you guys at? Uh, are you at eight o'clock? We're at ten o'clock. Ten o'clock. Thursday 10 o'clock. nights, ten o'clock. TBS. King, of, King the of the Nerds. Thank you um, so much. It's yes. been great, great fun. I really so appreciate it. So good to see it. you, man. So good to see you Thank again. You. It's, I mean, honestly, if you have any idea, uh, for lack of a better term, how much I was nerding out over meeting you and the rest of the guys and sitting and talking to you, I mean, like, you, honestly, so many things that were a part of what defined me <laughs> when I was growing up and that I identified with were things that you were a part of. So it was, you know, like, this, this really means the world to me. And I, oh, really I appreciate, appreciate it. it. Thank you. Absolutely. Thanks, man. Enjoy your burrito, everyone. Cool. Nice. Thank you, everybody. That was really fun. Absolutely. Really fun. Now leaving Nerdist.com. Enjoy your burrito. 
once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat.